Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's pledge season on Slate Podcasts. If you love the Slate Culture Gab Fest, you can help support it by joining Slate Plus at slate.com slash culture plus. We'll be talking about it more later in the show. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Allegory Edition. On today's show, Mother is the new and whoo boy is it controversial movie from director Darren Aronofsky. I cannot, I don't think I've ever, Dana Stevens, wanted to discuss a movie more with you. I cannot wait to dig into this one. And then The Vietnam War is a new and very ambitious multi-part documentary on PBS. It's from the director Ken Burns, most well-known, I believe, still for his Civil War documentary. He co-created and directed this with Lynn Novick. I cannot wait to talk about this, too. And finally, our own and very beloved producer, I am ready to confer the title BFOP upon him, best friend of the program, is also an accomplished comic book graphic novel writer. He talks to us about his wonderful piece on Slate about the art of caricature. Joining me today is uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Dana. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning. We're going to have a rotating third today because sadly, Julia Turner, uh, the uh, editor of Slate magazine and our usual third co-panelist here has a stomach bug. Jack Hamilton is going to come talk with us about Mother, which I feel like we always have to say with an upward inflection to indicate the exclamation point. Well, also in part because it's an allegory. (laughs) All right, we'll get there. We'll get there. And for the Vietnam series, we have Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic, who's seen the entire long slog of the series and written about it. So I'm excited to talk to her. All right, let's get to it. Darren Aronofsky is one of a handful of American directors, certainly uh, Hollywood film directors, whose work is guided almost exclusively by his own personal vision. Starting with the low-budget pie through The Wrestler and Black Swan, he has become a true uh, auteur. His new movie, Mother, that's with a small m uh, and an exclamation point, tells the story of a married couple. Uh, The man is a much older and famous poet, played by Javier Bardem, married to a much, much younger woman, played by uh, Jennifer Lawrence. From there, though, what unfolds is very hard to describe. It's this allegory that is certainly about the perils of human creativity and the muse, but uh, may also encompass uh, every conceivable cycle of birth and death and uh, the cosmos. Anyway, uh, we'll get into it, no doubt, but first let's listen to a clip. All right, before we roll the clip, just to set it up, you're going to hear Michelle Pfeiffer's voice, who plays a secondary role that we'll talk about, and uh, she's talking to to Jennifer Lawrence, and all you need to know really is that Michelle Pfeiffer is a semi-unwelcome guest in Jennifer Lawrence's home. Lemonade. Oops. Oh, careful. 
Thought you might like some. Yes, thank you. Secret family recipe. Which part of the lemons? How's your hand? Oh. Still stinging. I'm sorry. It's not like it was your fault. You don't have any painkillers, do you? Are you telling me the truth? I really don't have any. I'm sorry. Okay. So we're joined for this segment by Jack Hamilton, who is a slate pop critic and, and professor of American and media studies at the University of Virginia. Jack, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. It's always an honor. <laughs> uh, it's always a pleasure to have you. But let me set this up just a little bit more for people who haven't seen the movie. I mean, there is a, a kind of element of a plot, which is that Javier Bardem plays this older, very famous kind of venerated poet who's gone through a period of creative sterility. He can't write. And his very young wife uh, has spent her time... Uh, working around his moods uh, and his frustrations, and in doing so has also refurbished, really restored, um, or is in the process of restoring this huge, beautiful, I think, Victorian mansion that they live in um, that we sense is very important to his life story. And is very remote. That's important to know, too, that the house seems to be in the middle of of nowhere to the degree that it doesn't have (laughs) roads around it. Okay, so we're already getting into sort of Eden territory when you first look at the house and its grounds. To be honest, I actually, I think I'm one of the minority people that actually really sort of enjoyed this movie. I didn't think it was, it's it's certainly a wildly imperfect film, um, but I actually thought it was really funny, um, particularly the first half of it. To me with this movie, it's like, the first half I thought was really fantastic. And then it sort of um, kind of falls apart as it builds to its uh, climax. Um, but yeah, I mean, the part that we just listened to uh, with, with Michelle Pfeiffer, uh, to me, like the, the, the greatest parts of this movie are the dynamic between Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem and Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer. Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer show up as basically unannounced, uninvited guests. Uh, their origin is um, pretty ambiguous. Uh, and then there's like probably 30 minutes of the movie that are just like, it's like a horror movie in which the horror is people who ignore social cues. Um, <laughs> I agree. That is the best part. Absolutely, Jack. Yeah, that is the best I, part. I, of the I, I'm, I'm with you so far. And it's so funny. It's just, I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer is amazing. She's so great. Um, it's just like, it's one of her one of her best performances, I think. Um, yeah, so I thought it was just gonna be, uh, there was a moment in the movie where I thought it was just gonna be the Book of Genesis played out in this awkward dinner party situation, which I was totally on board for. Thought that was a fantastic idea. Um, and then it, it exceeds that and goes into even more ambitious directions. And I think, yeah, I think it's sort of an example of uh, the, the reach exceeding the grasp as it were, but I actually, you know, I really respect Aronofsky as a filmmaker that that tried to do this, uh, whatever exactly it is. <laughs> mm. Dana, I'm just dying to know what do you think of this movie in 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 Toto. Well, I mean, I feel like I need to give a little bit of the history of my experience with the movie because by now, I mean, I saw it at Toronto when we were there for the film festival and for our live show last week. And it was sort of the talk of the festival, not in the sense that it was, you know, a huge hit or that everyone loved it. But it was just I kept on seeing film critic tweets on film Twitter where people would be coming out of it freaked out or laughing hysterically or having some kind of, you know, intense emotional reaction to it, uh, including some people that were disgusted and, and horrified and said so in their reviews. And so I walked into it, you know, very trepidatious and excited, um, then stayed up all night writing about it. 
then subsequently recorded a spoiler special podcast on it last week, which you can find in the Culture Gab Fest feed with um, with Forrest Wickman and Sam Adams here at Slate. And uh, and I'm now having my second long conversation about it, which is not to say that I'm sick of talking about the movie, but just that I feel like I've spiraled through a lot of different reactions to it by now. <laughs> and and in general, I would characterize that spiral as the further I get in time from the movie and the more discussions I hear about it, in particular, Darren Aronofsky himself, who keeps on taking to various podiums to over-explain his movie, the less I like it. So I'm kind of right now at a, at a low point in my appreciation for Mother. But I should start off by saying that I'm glad this movie exists. It's amazing that Paramount made it and put this much money into it. It's a you know mid-budget 30 to $40 million movie and is standing behind it. And after it bombed at the box office the first weekend, issued this you know very proud statement that they are happy to have this auteur director in their, in their ranks, basically. So I feel like the existence of Mother is a good thing for, for cinema in general, even if you don't like this individual movie because it is so unusual and ambitious and weird. Okay, so that all said, uh, I guess my reaction to it would be somewhat similar to Jack's in that the domestic comedy in the first half is great. And the cosmological reach of the second half is impressive, but it becomes, and none of us have really said this yet, but it becomes increasingly unpleasant to watch. There's at least half an hour to 20 minutes at the end that I would say, I mean, no matter what your investment in the movie is, is just is just simply trying to work on your revulsion and make itself as hard to watch as possible. So that's mm-hmm. an important thing to know going in. I mean, I considered putting a trigger warning on my review, even though, as Jack says, there's large portions of the movie that you experience the horror almost as camp and you're laughing at it. So that's something to know going in is that you're going to have a lot of wildly different um, uh, sensational sensation seeking imagery thrown at you. Mm-hmm. Uh, at a bare minimum, let me say that that, that that in the ten years that we've done this podcast, the, an arc has been uh, my skepticism and kind of sour contempt for a lot of American culture has really softened in part because I got older <laughs> and 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 dumber, uh, in part because I had kids, but in part because thanks, I think almost almost overwhelmingly to streaming, the advent of streaming TV, uh, so much of what we talk about on a week, week-to-week basis is good. Um, uh, this is the worst movie I've ever seen. Um, and, it's, <laughs> and, it's, and therefore, using uh, uh, purely deductive logic, we can conclude it's the worst movie I've had to talk about in the history of the culture gap fest. I mean, it's, yes, 30 minutes into the movie, I had the thought that you both had, that it could be a success on the level of, of kind of surrealist satire. It, but for full 10 to 15 minutes at the very beginning of the movie, I thought it was a failure in part because it's every character seemed ill-motivated and um, very vaguely and poorly drawn. And then the situation became galvanic in a very funny way, but nobody became real in the course of it. And then over the, over the remainder of the movie, it's clear that you're in such a symbolically loaded and allegorical universe. Nobody bears the burden of being a, a real person person in the film yeah which fine is is which is the premise of the you know which is simply the movie unfolding according to its own internal premise which is fine that said then let's judge it then as as a work of kind of symbolic would-be literature i mean it's it's totally preposterous it you know it's utterly pretentious it posits what it posits about the nature of masculinity and femininity relative to one another and to human creativity is whoppingly sexist uh, and narcissistic on the part of the artist who made it. Um, it. It is funny for about 10 or 15 minutes and in control for the rest of it. It's utterly unfunny, um, uh, not only unfunny, but ungripping, completely inhuman. And then when it goes off the rails, it's 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 so disgusting. It's so 
it's so studiedly repulsive and having not set that up as as meaningful it's 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 an assault that that comes at you so directly from the artistic self-centeredness and egomania of the person who created it that um i think it's possible to negate this movie critically in the in maximalist terms and dana i would i would answer you know your assertion that it's good for American movies. I don't know that that's necessarily true. The jury on that is out. I mean, you know, you could have said the same thing about Heaven's Gate, that it was great for American movies that in 1979, you know, a major distributor like United Artists got behind a uh, a director as auteur like Michael Cimino and gave him a blank check. Well, it killed auteur cinema for 10 years. I mean, you know, we don't well, but know. This is, what... But this isn't a, a colossal waste of resources no, on that scale. No, I get it. No, no, no. And it, and it won't be. It can't be. That's true. I mean, it would have to have cost, you know, in today's dollars, 200 million, you know, uh, 200 million bucks. But but my point is only that net net at this point it's too early to say whether this becomes this thing that in meetings in Hollywood is held up as a reason to not give directors uh, carte blanche over their own material. I mean I think this is a really seriously misbegotten movie. Uh, it 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 misuses everybody's talent and abuses. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence to per, to to I think highly masculinist uh, purposes of the director I I couldn't dislike it in stronger terms. See, I totally agree with that last part about it being a sexist abuse of Jennifer Lawrence, and I feel like I'm I'm pretty sensitive to those things. Like I really don't like Lars von Trier anymore for that reason. I think he's an enormously talented filmmaker, but I'm just sick of watching him, you know, cast beautiful young women and torture and mistreat them on screen, and seem to torture and mistreat them on the set as well. And I don't get the sense that that's what Aronofsky was doing, even though he and Jennifer Lawrence got together after this movie and are now dating. I mean, I would have every reason to say, like, he is the poet in this movie. He is the Javier Bardem character. And it is clear that he is making some sort of statement about, you know, his his relationships, his relationship with Rachel Weisz of many years broke up a few years ago when she left him for Daniel Craig. But that's a separate tabloid item. Uh, And it's clear that there's autobiographical material in here, even though he denies it. But I don't know. What about you, Jack? Did you feel that? I just didn't feel that Jennifer Lawrence was put in there merely to be a female voodoo doll for Aronofsky. Well, yeah. One thing I was thinking about just listening to to Steve's um, reaction, which I love the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> um, and I often think of think of the worst movie I've ever seen as being Birdman, um, <laughs> which is a film that uh, that actually has a lot of resemblances to this, I think. In terms yeah, of it it's, it's in the discussion, the that's for sure, yeah. It, it's a movie about the filmmaker and like the filmmaker's vision of himself. I guess to me, where mother either sort of um, succeeds or fails is like, I think a deeply subjective response about whether it has a sense of humor about itself, which I found Birdman to just be incredibly petulant and narcissistic and preening and humorless. Uh, Whereas with mother, I felt like there was an element of it that felt a little bit like, uh, like he was just sort of throwing things out there. I felt there was a little bit of a playfulness to it. I thought A.O. Scott's uh, great description of it as a hoot was um, was really sort of how I felt about the movie. Um, but again, that's like a really subjective response. And I think, yeah, whether or not um, this movie, yeah, has a sense of humor about itself, whether it, how seriously it's ultimately taking itself by the end of it. And I agree that by the end of it, it's really unpleasant and ugly, aesthetically ugly as well. That's another thing. But the beginning part of this movie is aesthetically gorgeous. It's so well shot. Um, and by the end, it's just dark and dismal and it's sort of hard to figure out what's going on. 
but I don't disagree with anything you said, but I do think that there's an internal contradiction there, which is all of that darkness at the end signals to you that he thinks of this. Darren Aronofsky regards this movie as a serious exploration of the nature of human creativity and its pl- and its place within a cosmos that divides between masculinist c- capacity for creation and 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 a, a f- highly you know, essentialized feminine one that's generative and maternal. I mean, he is dealing in absolutely sophomoric cliches by the end of the movie, and he's taking them very seriously. I find I find that completely nullifying of the hoot that the first 30 to 40 minutes admittedly is. I respect that. There's so much to say about this movie that can't be said without spoiling. It really is one of those movies that's completely twist dependent. That's why we decided to make this week's Slate Plus segment a spoiler-filled discussion of the movie. We're just going to continue the conversation with no holds barred. And if people have seen the movie or don't care to see the movie and just want to hear about it, skip on over to the Slate Plus. Okay, the movie is small M exclamation point mother from Darren Aronofsky. We are sort of split on it with extreme feelings. Um, No doubt some of you have uh, uh, equally extreme feelings. Come to facebook.com slash culturefest and uh, vent them. Uh, at or with us. Uh, so one more time, Jack Hamilton is a slate pop critic and a professor of American and media studies at UVA. Jack, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's a blast. Okay, moving on. Hello, we are in week two of the Slate Plus podcast pledge drive. Uh, that means you should sign up at slate.com slash culture plus for Slate Plus to support Slate and the journalism that we do to get an ad-free version of this feed, one that to be honest, would not include the pledge drive uh, and also bonus segments of our show and other Slate shows every week uh, and to just generally reap the benefits of Slate Plus. Here to tell us about this pledge drive is editorial director of Slate Plus, Gabriel Roth. Hi, Julia. Hi, Gabe. Julia, in the present moment, Slate's work has been sort of more focused, more urgent, in some ways more political, in a lot of ways more immediate. Um, uh, let me urge you then to help support the production of this and our other podcasts and all the work that Slate is doing uh, by joining Slate Plus using the URL slate.com slash culture plus. Julia, how has Slate Plus been helping with that? I mean, I think the morning after Election Day uh, was a hard day for a lot of people in this country. It was a real um, force for me, a real moment of reckoning of what kind of place we live and what the values are of the people who live here and what the future might hold. You know, one thing that happened that day was that we began to see many, many Slate readers and listeners joining Slate Plus. And I can't overstate how much that meant to the newsroom here and how bolstered people felt by the sense that you guys are out there counting on the work that we do to help to interpret the chaos that the Trump presidency um, has created. And, you know, Slate is a business that relies heavily on advertising revenue. But the more uh, we can be supported by the people who actually value the work that we do, the more uh, independent we can be and the more sustainable we can be and the more of this work we can do. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, I talked about 
trying to manage my own media diet and figure out how not to be overwhelmed and demoralized and depressed by the news. And honestly, Slate podcasts, including the plus segments, are part of the way I do that. Sometimes I just I can't deal with following a story until I can hear John Dickerson, Emily Bazelon and David Plotz take it apart or Jamel Bowie talk about it on Trumpcast. And uh, and so it's almost like I'm saving up, you know, what little psychic energy I have left and letting those shows help me manage the trauma. It's, it's actually been a really important vector of comfort and information for me since the election. Yeah, and we're also using Plus Support to produce additional work that we wouldn't have been able to produce otherwise. Immediately after the election, then we started work on a historical podcast series looking at the history of fascism in Europe, asking what kind of lessons that might have for what we're facing in America today. Um, we've been doing these culture clubs looking deeply at different works of art, including this one that just wrapped up with Sam Adams on paranoid conspiracy thrillers. Um, oh, I did was, one of those. Those were yeah, great. Uh, yours was a great episode. Tell Thank me you. what movie you did again. We did The Born of the Made of. Oh, yeah. Oh, the Born the, 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 the Trilogy. The Born Trilogy. That was terrific. We're also putting it directly into the reporting. This year, one of the things that's been important to us is more on-the-ground reporting from more parts of the country, and we're using funding from Slate Plus to send our reporters all over the country. So we sent Aisha Harris to go cover uh, the Dolly Parton Dixieland stampede and to understand one way in which the Civil War is popularly remembered by vacationing Americans. So if you listening to this show um, are a fan of the show or a fan of the work that Slate does, if you find this stuff valuable and, and you're able to help us out, um, please do go to slate.com slash culture plus slate.com slash culture plus sign up for a Slate Plus member membership. Uh, you'll be glad you did, and so will we. Thanks a lot. The Vietnam War is a new documentary from Ken Burns, he of the Civil War fame, a documentary, as I understand it, viewed by 40 million people and counting, uh, and his co-director and co-creator, Lynn Novick. This multi-part uh, TV show traces the history of the American involvement in Indochina that resulted finally in nearly 60,000 American deaths and many millions of casualties among the Vietnamese and neighboring countries of Laos and Cambodia. It begins with a deep and I think quite historically sensitive dive into the history of French colonial rule in Vietnam and uh, follows through a cascading series of ignorant, self-centered, hubristic miscalculations on the part of the United States, all of which resulted in a tragedy that shapes to this day the American social, cultural, and political experience. Uh, really going to want to get into all of that, but first let's listen to a clip. My hatred for them was pure. Pure. I hated them so much. And I was so scared of them. Boy, I was terrified of him. And the scareder I got, the more I hated him. I was an 18-year-old Marine rifleman with the, with the ink still wet on my high school diploma. I didn't want to shame myself in front of my buddies. But I was so scared. I felt like I was hanging onto my honor by my fingernails the whole time I was there. All right. Well, we're joined by Willa Paskin Slate's TV critic. Willa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hi, Steve. Hi, Dana. Uh, so, there, uh, Willa, there are two sort of obvious ways, uh, um, especially with you as a guest, to consider this. The first is just as a work of history, right? I mean, sort of an interpretive history. And it's both presentation of the facts, but also its interpretation of this really kind of astonishingly pervasive and still pervasive and important fact of American history that we blew apart 
as a country during the Vietnam era uh, and never quite reassembled ourselves in, in the same heroic, you know, with the same sort of heroic and optimistic sense of who we were. There's that, and I want to get into it very badly, but this is also a, a television show and you're a TV critic. What did you make of it as a TV show? Well, I mean, I think that those questions that you're um, hinting at and wanting to get into are sort of inextricable from it as a TV show. Like it's, some of the things about a Ken Burns documentary, um, which the Vietnam War is, are actually also totally in conversation with those questions. So it's like, can can we Americans all watch um, an 18-hour, 10-episode version of our history that are contest a really recently contested and um, fraught history, and and agree to um, to some agree to setting a baseline as to what actually happened. And that's sort of what Burns's project here is. Um, and I mean, I think he's, ex- I think he's very successful. I think the documentary is very powerful and, and also very detailed and very interesting. And that there is, um, he makes a lot of linguistic moves um, to sort of to both sides to allow um, himself and his team and Lenovic to tell this story that I think is, is basically extremely critical of, um, you know, what happened. I mean, they use, they use softer words. Um, they describe it as a tragedy as you just did instead of as a failure, uh, or a defeat. Um, and, and they blame it on, you know, both presidents, both I mean, presidents from both parties. They do all of these things to sort of talk about, um, a real, a, a thing that is still really fraught for everybody, but that, um, in the hopes that Ken Burns and nobody else can make us, you know, agree and mm-hmm. exist in the same space. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's a brilliant point, right? Because on the one hand, you have the underlying subject matter, the essence of which is its relevance to us now is that it blew us apart and fragmented us as a culture. So we don't have a common narrative post-Vietnam or a consensus narrative. And on the other hand, you got Ken Burns. He's known for placing over the, the, the bloody tragedy of the Civil War, this kind of sepia, I mean, I hesitate to use the word, but a kind of nostalgia by which it's been processed and become an utterly magnanimous piece of our own common history. And how are these two things going to come together? Now, I mean, my feeling is that it just on a purely, I mean, narrow, you know, level of dramatic narrative, it works beautifully. I'm, I'm, four hours in and fully intend to watch every minute of it at that level do you do you think it works yeah totally and actually one of the things that um i found sort of striking about watching it and this may this may expose me in ways that i don't want to be exposed although i think that the point will stand which is just that in watching it i suddenly realized i was fuzzy about all of these sort of particulars about vietnam even though vietnam feels to me um it looms extremely large in my sense of, uh, of recent American history, basically. Like it looms extremely large in my sense of the sixties and my sense of the sixties almost looms the largest in, you know, uh, in my sense of, of recent American history, basically. But that I, as I was watching, I realized I didn't know all of these details and, and it sort of, it, it became clear to me that that's actually, I mean, that's a failure on my part, but it actually is also a symptom of, sort of our cultural fuzziness about Vietnam, that actually there is um, a lot of detail and a lot of conversation we have not had about it because we haven't processed it, basically. And we have instead chosen not to talk about it, which um, this is actually like Mm -hmm. a step towards um, making those details extremely clear so that we're actually talking about history and facts and details and not just like our um, 
you know, very passionate, very fervent, very overdetermined feelings about what side or position we are on it and whether we should have been engaged in it and uh, how we should have reacted to our engagement with it and all those um, questions. Yeah, that's very true, Willa. This, even if you feel like you've been, you've grown up kind of steeped in Vietnam narratives of different kinds. And I know I sort of felt as a child and teenager that sort of every serious, successful movie that came out was some kind of Vietnam story, right? In the era of Born of the Fourth of July and Coming Home and The Deer Hunter. And I mean, Vietnam was the place that Hollywood would return again and again to these narratives of war trauma. But the story that's told, at least in the part of this documentary that I've seen so far, that doesn't get told in those stories is the Vietnamese side. And there, I think we have to shout out Lynn Novick, who's the co-director with Ken Burns of this this whole series, and who apparently did essentially all the, the work in Vietnam, the interviews with Vietnamese veterans and civilians and politicians and others. She did all of that research and interviewing herself. Ken Burns never went to Vietnam because of health problems, I guess. Uh, and there's a wonderful profile of, of Lynn Novick in The Washington Post that, that gets into to her work on the documentary. But to me, that was one of the huge things that it brought that I wasn't familiar with from other either documentaries or fictional representations of Vietnam, which was going all the way back. I mean, the first episode goes all the way back to, I believe, 1858 is the first year it covers. And the French colonial culture in Vietnam and, you know, sort of the the wars in Southeast Asia that long preceded America's involvement there. And having that background was incredibly useful from a historical point of view, but also it was just extremely emotionally moving to hear these Vietnamese, both South and North Vietnamese survivors of the war tell their own stories. That actually, that move to have, um, to have North Vietnamese soldiers speak, veterans speak, and also to have, um, to sort of set up that history, I think are both in your face um, moves for a documentary that's about such sort of fraught material. But I think, you know, they then actually soften it, I think, with a lot of the the narration and the language that they use around it. So that actually in in the introduction, they say, um, you know, it was it was a started with good intentions, essentially, the best of intentions. And 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 they've just outlined a history that it's very hard to find actually great intentions from the Americans in the very beginning of the war and our relationship to the French, uh, our relationship to France's war um, with the Vietnamese, which is basically like we are momentarily on the side of self-determination and then decide we can't possibly be on the side of self-determination because we have to decide with our French allies. And that's in that first episode. And they, so they give you this history Mm -hmm. and then they sort of wrap it in um, more gentle language to, you know, that doesn't, I think that doesn't even uh, doesn't undermine their more detailed analysis, but just sort of like lets lets you lets you take that in and then maybe not like get totally worked up if that's the kind of thing that might offend you. I would push back on that a little bit, Willa, and, and maybe you'll disagree, but let me just lay it out there, which is that I actually don't think we came to the defense of the French colonial interests in Vietnam at all. In fact, we superseded them, hoping for democratic self determination. And then abandoned that when um, we imposed uh, really unilaterally and with a whopping insensitivity a Cold War narrative on the on the Vietnamese. But even then, that was of a piece with really, I would say, sort of Kennedy's notion that uh, that the Soviets formed a, another kind of invading uh, or or alien and colonial, poss- potentially colonial force, and that. Um, we insisted on fighting a proxy war uh, in favor of what we believed might be democratic self-determination against the Soviets. And then when that soured, and this is to me where, you know, 
tragedy really begins to set in is that in 1962, John F. Kennedy is still alive. He privately has voiced unequivocally his belief that Vietnam will end in failure and disaster. Diem, who is our essentially, not quite our puppet, that's not quite accurate, but who is essentially our our guy in the fight in South Vietnam, has revealed himself to be utterly corrupt. His brother runs a secret police like a private gangster organization and is killing people. And furthermore, Diem is a Catholic, okay, and, 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 and that is a small minority in an overwhelmingly Buddhist culture. The Buddhist monks have begun to, have begun to light themselves on fire in South Vietnam in protest of the way Diem and his brother are uh, running the country and oppressing majority religious rights in the country. And at that moment, nobody with a brain in the American foreign policy establishment who isn't totally blindly imposing a Cold War paradigm on what's happening knows that Vietnam will be a failure. And do you know how many people, how many Americans have died at that point? 47, okay? And remember... We know now, regardless of what your p- political persuasion is, that we did lose Vietnam to communism, okay? So we could have had the exact same outcome in 1962, minus 3 million deaths, 60,000 Americans, with a 47 American body count in 1962. And it over and over and over again, and I agree with you about the softening, they are very careful to make this politically neutral and palatable, though as they move forward, that's going to become, I think, pretty unavoidable i mean you've seen the whole thing you can tell me but 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 nonetheless as you as you quite rightly point out the devil is in these extraordinary details um so that the that the totality of it adds up to uh, it's not even really an argument it's a reality that the viewer has to be brought in touch with and i just want to pound quickly before i seed the microphone i want to pound the table i think this is brilliant brilliant documentary filmmaking and television about a subject that for all that we've talked about it and thought about it, 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 it is worthy of this, this, this depth of treatment. I think people have to watch this. I really believe that. You, you know, it is remarkable and it becomes only truer as you go through the piece and it becomes sort of much more and more about the anti-war protests and the heat around that, which I think is, it's actually sort of where the heat is in a way uh, like when I say heat, I just mean the sort of conflict and the and the raw feeling, like just how much we're still living in in that world of that of that disagreement about um about how Americans are supposed to behave and how patriots are supposed to behave and and what patriotism is. Um, I mean, we could not be living in that moment more, basically, and we could not be living more in a, in a, in a moment where sort of the the cultural divide and our um, our bubbles were like formed basically um and i think that they you know uh burns and novick are aware of that i think they they touch on it at various moments although i think they try not to touch on it too hard um for all the obvious reasons but it's it's really stark you know like we're just coming up like coming off a weekend where we're talking about whether kneeling you know before a flag at a football game is an insult to the troops we're like with this whole idea about whether criticizing an unjust war is to criticize the men who are fighting it. I mean, this is all just Vietnam stuff. It's just, it, ha- it has, it has new valences. It has new meanings. It has new context, but it is also just old. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, as always, you're just a superlative guest. It was a total pleasure. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs>
I just come on to get compliments like that <laughs> anytime. All right. Well, it's called The Vietnam War. It's from Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. It's on PBS. And as Willis says, it's also streaming as I've been watching it on PBS's uh, uh, website. Um, so it can be watched uh, at your convenience. Highly, highly, highly recommended. Okay, moving on. All right. Well, now is the moment in our program where we talk about our business. Surely we have some. Dana? I have only one piece of business this week, which is which is what I'm very excited about, which is that uh, some listeners will know that for a long time there was a podcast in the Slate podcast universe called the Slate Spoiler Special, where we would talk about movies without any, uh, just have untrammeled conversations about movies where plot spoilers could be freely thrown around. And uh, at some point, because we lost our producer and we lost our studio, and I'm not quite sure why, but the Slate Spoiler Special went on hiatus, but it's back. The Slate Spoiler Special is back. We now have two of them. We're going to be doing one every second Friday, I believe. And the first two are about two very spoilable recent releases, It and Mother, which we are talking about today on the GabFest as well. So if you are a former or hopefully future Slate Spoiler Special fan, go to the Culture GabFest feed and you can find once every two weeks a spoiler-filled discussion of a current movie. Uh, fantastic. All right, I have a quick piece of business. Uh, I, uh, this Friday, am delivering something called the William Hammond Lecture on the American Tradition at Ohio State University. This is on Friday, September 29th at uh, 4 p.m. in the University Hall. I'm not sure which room it is, but I'm sure you can find it. If you are in Columbus, Ohio, have any desire to hear me gas on about the American tradition, that's what will happen at 4 p.m. at Ohio State. So uh, maybe I'll see you there. All right. Well, this is a very special segment for us. Our producer, uh, Benjamin Frisch, who I have to say, I don't like to make invidious comparisons, but he, let's just let's just put it this way. He is in very, very, very uh, select company. He is in the stratosphere of by far and away uh, best producers we've ever had for this show. Uh, in addition to which, he's multi-talented. Um, he's a, a, an accomplished graphic novel writer. His book, The Fun Family, uh, is out, and you can find it on Amazon. Benjamin, uh, you've come on the show to talk about a piece you wrote for Slate about caricaturing in which you say, uh, quite beautifully, a caricature is a symbolic representation of a person's face, but then you go on to say, it takes place on a battlefield between our physical appearance as observed by others and our often dysmorphic view of our own appearance. This was a gap. Tell, tell our listeners how this was a gap that you had to bridge, a gulf that you had to bridge when you worked at a, as a caricaturist as a teenager at an amusement park. Tell us a little bit about that experience. First, I guess caricaturing is something that is sort of a staple, I think, of American tourist culture, but is something that is almost never intellectualized. Um, and so uh, the reason that I really wanted to write this piece was uh, because that we're doing this customer service blog at Slate. And um, I think that caricaturing is a totally unique customer service experience. It's an incredibly challenging one. Uh, it's incredibly difficult. Uh, and the anecdote that I sort of frame the piece with is this one time where um, I was drawing, I think I was my second year. I was not a great artist at the time, but I was starting to sort of get the ropes. Were you in high school? Uh, yes. Yeah, I was in high school. I did. I caricatured for four summers. And this um, was at, at Bush Gardens at the amusement Bush Park. Gardens in Williamsburg, Virginia. Yeah, where I grew up. Uh, I was approached by a uh, middle-aged woman who was pushing this like very heavy-duty wheelchair um, and she asked me to draw a caricature of this teenage boy who was in the wheelchair. He um, didn't really seem to uh, understand what was going on in the situation. Like he wouldn't respond to me or couldn't respond to me. I don't know. 
Um, and like, you know, when you when you draw a character, you're often asking people to, uh, you know, smile for you or you make conversation with them in order to sort of gauge what kind of drawing you're going to do. Um, and so I was not getting any of that. So I just did what I would normally, what I would always do, which is just draw. <laughs> I just drew his face um, and I didn't, you know, exaggerate. Uh, any aspect of uh, his disability or anything like that. I just sort of drew his face. And I remember this drawing very, very well. You know, I thought it was a pretty decent likeness and a decent sketch. Um, and I showed it to him and he did not respond. I, and um, then I showed it to the the woman that was with him, the caretaker, and she uh, got very, very angry. She told me that I was a terrible artist and a horrible person uh, and then just sort of stormed away. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, and I still don't know why she rejected the sketch. Um I don't know if it was because she thought that I was mocking the boy. I don't know if she thought that I was maybe not representing his uh, disability in some way. I do not know and I will never know. But I think that that story to me really brings to mind the the real difficulty of caricaturing, which is the difference between what I see when I look at you and uh, your perception of yourself uh, or your loved one. That's I think that that's the gap. That's the customer service gap that you're really dealing with when you're caricaturing. Well, that's an extreme version, but there must have been other moments where people were sort of insulted or offended by their caricatures, no? Yeah, people rejected their characters all the time um, for a million different reasons. Most of the sometimes just the drawing wasn't good and sometimes it was for, you know, personal reasons. Conflicts around caricaturing often take place around societal beauty standards like uh for example, I was drawing this uh, teen, maybe 13-year-old girl, um, and she had sort of smaller than average eyes and sort of her eyes sort of scrunched up when she smiled. She was like a cute, you know, you know, baby fat kid. And afterward, the mother and I got into an argument about the like the relative size of her eyes. The mother insisted that she had big, beautiful eyes. She did not have small eyes. She has big, beautiful eyes. And that was sort of typical. When you're drawing caricatures, there are rules of resemblance. Like I know that like the the shape of the face is very important to a likeness. The ratio between the eyes and the nose is also very important to a likeness. And so those are the things that I look at. And it's not entirely, it's not an objective art, but there are certain rules that you look for in order to make somebody look like the person that they are. Um, and then when you start, like if I just drew this girl's eyes big and wide it would not resemble her at all to me that's not the point of a caricature but i was also like i you know i didn't sell a ton i I made enough money i made good money for a teenager but i was like not a super successful caricature artist yeah i'm just thinking what popped into my mind as you're talking about the the girl's mother being offended by the small eyes is the, the the classic obama caricature with his ears sticking out right i mean that's the way every cartoonist drew obama for the length of his mm-hmm. his two administrations and there's so many bad obama caricatures this is something that drove oh i want to hear crazy. about this what do you hate about obama caricatures well i think a lot of obama characters are are not don't really actually look at obama's face obama has a pretty triangular face, um, which I think sometimes people ignore for something more kind of boxy and rectangular. Um, He's also very chinny, which adds to that sort of triangular shape. And I think people forget about chins for some reason a lot of the time. It's not a very glamorous part of the face to draw, but it is actually really important for a likeness. And uh, Obama, you know, he does have ears that kind of stick out, but they're not 
enormous ears. He actually has small ears, but they just stick out, right? I mean, they they stick out, and um, I I think that's still useful. But there are also, I think, a lot of caricatures uh, of Obama, especially that are sort of like subtly, like kind of racially stereotyped. Um, Like Obama does not have especially large lips, for example. But a lot of characters of Obama, you'll see, he has like very large lips, and. Uh, I think that that's that's the kind that that is a part of caricaturing that is, um, you know, very subjective. And uh, you have to be really careful about that, I think. Well, Ben, I I loved your piece and I loved the way it ended. I won't spoil it, but it just ends on a lovely note. Um, But uh, to sort of pursue the theme that's behind the thought that ends the piece, on the one hand, you're an artist, right? And an artist portraiture famously is meant to bring out not just the likeness, but the to depict in two dimensions and bring to the surface something about a person's character, right? And and on the other hand, this is like as pure a customer service transaction as there is. You're sitting there with this person in an amusement park and you know, you're trying to portray them as they want to see themselves portrayed. I mean, how 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 do you juggle these two things vis-a-vis one another? I think every artist kind of finds their own way, but it's it's a really, really tough circle to square because charactering is a confrontational art form. And then when you're selling uh, art to, you know, tourists at a theme park, like the last thing they want to buy is something really confrontational. You often through conversation, sort of when you're talking to them as they sit down in your chair, what kind of person they are, how far you can push, um, and maybe a little bit about how they see themselves. Sometimes people will say, will ask you, um, you know, straight up, like, don't, you know, don't draw my nose too big or something. Uh, and sometimes you just sort of have to guess. Like, you are, to me, a really caricature, a, a really pleasing character is one that's very surprising. Um, but that's mm. not what a lot of people want, I think. And so learn, and but some people do, like, some people really want to be challenged. Uh, and learning to read people's signals is uh, something that you learn some, but I was just like never very good at it, I don't think. Do you think it taught you something about drawing, though, to spend those summers? Doing oh, my God. I, I mean, I'm still a thousand times better at drawing faces than I am at drawing anything else, uh, and I owe that entirely to caricaturing. Um, caricaturing is also about learning to see. Like, there's a, there's a, a really strong life-drawing element to caricaturing, like learning to understand how a face looks in relationship to other faces, but also to itself just learning the basic vocabulary of what makes a face look like a person or, or someone else is incredibly useful. All right. Well, we got to we got to go there in this day and age. Donald Trump, how would you how would you go about it? Uh, I mean, Trump is like he's so saggy. Uh, funny, the thing that that makes me sort of think of is uh, this very famous series of caricatures uh, of uh, King Louis Philippe, um, the French you know, post-Napoleonic uh, French king. Uh, there's this very famous story of the caricaturist uh, Charles Philippon, who uh, ran a magazine called La Caricature. And he, um, at that time, satirists were under heavy pressure to censor themselves and they were getting jailed and being put totally out of business. Um, and he was brought on trial. Uh, and uh, he he said that his caricatures, his magazine should be exempt because actually, um, he, you know, any uh, any face could be drawn in any which way. Um, and so what he did is he drew a sketch, I believe, like in the courtroom of um, 
King Louis-Philippe's face sort of transforming into a pear. Of course, this was a very sly move because, of course, King Louis-Philippe has also a very sort of blobby face that sort of resembled a pear. And it's a very funny series of drawings. Um, and then he later published those and then was uh, immediately arrested and jailed. But <laughs> so far as that has to deal with Trump, um, I mean, Trump's like kind of like, I mean, his hair is like the thing, right? Like that is the sort of the one kind of thing that you can always sort of lean on as a caricaturist. But to me, the the principal character of his face is sort of like kind of gross bagginess. Right. It's doughiness, which yeah. does seem to be what shows up in the characters of him that I've seen so far, right? That his face sort of hangs from his hair like a big, big mm-hmm. bag. Yes, right. That he's this kind of crapulent sack. You know. <laughs> I love this segment. <laughs> Filled with like every lazy moral choice a human being could possibly make over the course of seven decades of life. Okay. On that note, <laughs> Benjamin, I, may you never ever draw me because I never want the gulf between who I am and who I think I am to be closed. I never want. <laughs> I never ever want to be in your presence ever again. And if I see you with a pencil, I'm going to ban behead you but um that said you are you are among a a tiny 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 group of the best producers this show has ever had it's a pleasure to introduce to our readers uh, how fucking talented you are outside the booth uh fun family is a really cool book i highly recommend it uh thanks for sitting with us thank you thank you for letting me out of the control room (laughs) it's been a long time Oh, but Ben, I, I, you, fuck you, you don't get to go back to the booth. Out of the booth, son. Um, can you stay and endorse? Sure. Now is the time for us to endorse. Dana, what do you have? Uh, because the whole country has been talking about flags and what flags mean and what we should do in relationship to flags this week, I'm going to flag a very funny Twitter thread by a guy I'd never heard of till this morning named Ken Chang. His, uh, his Twitter handle is Ken Chang Comedy. And what he decided to do, and then this got this went viral and I found it hilarious, was to go through the entire world's flags and disrespect every single one. <laughs> so he has 195 <laughs> posts. I haven't gotten through them all yet, but it's a really, really hilarious and wonderful thread that vexillologists worldwide, the studies, studiers of flags, will will enjoy reading. So he posts a picture of the flag and finds some either aesthetic, usually aesthetic reason to disrespect it. Once in a while, he has to admit, this is kind of a cool flag. But most of the familiar flags of the world, he absolutely disdains as, you know, as objects of design. And uh, it's very funny. The comments are very funny on the thread. It takes a long time to get through it. I'm still kind of scrolling. But when I needed a break this morning from uh, from prepping for this show, I just went and laughed at some flags. So it's, again, Ken Cheng Comedy on Twitter. And uh, it's not hard to find his flag thread if you go there. Now, oh, fantastic. I saw that this morning. It is fucking funny. Uh, ben, what do you have? An album that uh, is almost 10 years old. I think it's 10 years old in November that I'm not sure a lot of our listeners would be aware of, but is... I think something that is incredibly important to the fabric of contemporary popular music, which is this album called Untrue by Burial. Uh, Burial is a a UK house music producer. Um, He was sort of came up in the early 2000s dubstep scene, which uh, was very different than how it kind of came to be this sort of farty, loud party music in the United States. But he makes this very soft very, very sad music, often using samples of um, things like somebody shaking a paint can for percussion, or there's a song where uh, instead of maybe a hi-hat or something, he'll use like the sound of somebody trying to light a lighter. Um, Mm. And it creates this atmosphere of like this very 
of like what it is like to be in a, a city. Um, and his big innovation was he uh, took, he would take these sort of wailing diva vocals and then time stretch them, like stretch them out and then also pitch shift them so that they sort of lost all gender. Like, like they, they were coming out of the ether. It's really uh, strange. Beautiful, deeply, deeply sad music that is also um, urban in character and um, has come to that that influence, especially the use of vocals, has come to fe- be featured very, very prominently in um, all electronic music. Basically, it's um, a hugely influ- uh, influential record and uh, something that I think uh, you should seek out, even if you're not really into house music or electronic music. It is um, a really, really important album and. Um, one that I'm, uh, I'm deeply passionate about. It's called "Untrue" by Burial. That sounds that great. Sounds, yeah, very cool. Um, all right, so two things really quickly uh, for me this week. The first is, uh, you know, the question raised, a question raised by the Vietnam documentary is, to what extent were American ambitions in Vietnam uh, elevated or debased, uh, corrupt or noble, and uh, like when did we know what, and when should we have known that it was too late? On and on and on. I mean, one way to shade our understanding of all that is to read a 1955 novel by Graham Greene, an Englishman, uh, called The Quiet American, which is just intrinsically a great literary novel. I mean, Greene is just one of the masters of 20th century novel writing and prose. But but more to the point, he Greene was a Catholic, and I believe a Catholic convert, and he, he, he almost sort of zealously believed in the existential condition of mankind as sinful and, and lost, and saturated all of his experiences in Catholic guilt. And, and for someone like that, regardless of how you feel about it as a point of view in and of itself, American optimism can easily look like naivete and a kind of tragic hubris. And so in 1955, Green really sees the fate of America in Vietnam and uh, how tragically liable we are, vulnerable we are to misreading uh, the situation. And so in addition to being, I think, a masterful literary novel, it's, it's in, you know, I mean, we're talking full 20 years before we uh, disengaged from Vietnam, he sees how it's going to unfold. The Quiet American is a great novel, highly recommended. And then secondly, of course, we had the huge fucking privilege of having Courtney Barnett on the show. Uh, and uh, uh, I love her music. She's married to a woman named Jen Cloher, C-L-O-H-E-R. And I'm very embarrassed to say I, I didn't know her music. I met her very briefly in uh, Melbourne and liked her enormously. Her uh, record company sent me her latest record. I listened to it and then greedily listened to the rest of her back catalog, much of which, if not all of it, is on Spotify. She's a tremendous songwriter i'm pounding the table on this one she is uh completely unjustly unwell known in this country but uh she's a very gifted singer songwriter but kind of in an indie mode she both does folky stuff but also harder stuff um with a little bit of an edge uh you can see her influence on courtney barnett but in and of herself she is she is a, a like a great talent i was blown away by how much i love this music people should check her out it's jen cloer c-l-o-h-e-r apologies for probably mispronouncing it but pounding the table she's fucking fantastic all right uh ben thank you so so much oh thank you uh dana thank you thanks steven
What a pleasure. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader, the chief content officer of the Panoply Network, of which we are a part, is, of course, Andy Bowers. You can check out a roster of shows at uh, panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Dana Stevens and Benjamin Frisch and Jack Hamilton and Willa Paskin, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Mm-hmm.